Welcome to Live from My Drum Room. And uh, it's really a huge honor uh, and a gigantic pleasure to welcome one of my oldest and dearest friends. And that is a true fact. Uh, please welcome the great, the mighty Myron Grombacher. Johnny D. Mighty Tyrone. How are you, my friend? I'm great, my friend. I, I apologize. I, I, I had a lot more to say than I thought I did for the I intro. Took a, so. I took a little nap there. You know, the funny thing about <laughs> Zoom is when they put you in Zoom limbo, you see, <laughs> the host will admit you when he's ready. <laughs> I said, okay. So Zumbo is where I was. That's a new word. I'm not taking any credit. Zumbo. I like to sum up by wishing everybody a happy year of the rabbit. I just got back oh. from San Francisco. They're partying it up. I, of course, was born to Year of the Dragon. <laughs> and uh, uh. I'll tell all other dragons that rabbits are pretty much off the menu for 300 and some days. So um, we're vegetarians for a while. <laughs> How uh, many how's everybody? Buy hand puppets? Come on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, Myron, Anything for you, John. Anything. It's, I, buddy, I love you, man. I love you. Uh, you're the best. You, we got so many folks watching, and uh, I got to tell you, Dave Wasikinen of the Hooters, who oh, I know you I remember. Yeah, it's yeah, a great, guy. Yeah. great drummer. Great, I, guy. great drummer, great guy. He says hello, and and uh, he's been looking forward to this, and tons of people watching because we are live. So, yeah. and Thank I know God. you, you know. You're no stranger to, to playing live, so. Yeah, playing live's fine. Talking is a different deal, you know. So we'll see how this all works out. <laughs> so question number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got, a, we got a ton of questions, but I just want to just, just tell you, first of all, how much I appreciate you doing this today, because I know you don't do a lot of these. You kind of shy away. I don't do come any up with. <laughs> I know you don't. And I, when I, when I texted you the other day, you were so nice. You said, I said, any chance you'd want to do this? And you said for you? Yes. And I, I, I yeah. was, I so appreciated that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, all the love to you, Johnny. We go back a long, wow. long way. And right back at you, Myron. I, I, I tell you this story. I tell all my friends, my drummer friends, this story, you were really the first famous drummer I met when I moved to LA when I was working at Simmons and and I'm glad I met you first because you know that whole thing about never meet your heroes and you know you hear about these people that meet their heroes and, and are so disappointed and you like what you did probably turned me into a monster because you were so nice you may I never hesitated to approach a drummer after that because you were so great and that's how I like it. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think I hit my head that day. <laughs> I was kind of wandering around in a haze. Vulnerable. No, you, yeah. no you didn't. No. You didn't. I remember instantly digging you so much. I mean, I was such a fan. And and what, what struck me, and it still strikes me today when we get into phone conversations, is how much, like, at that time, I remember you, like, talking drums with you. And you knew more about drums than guys that work at drum shops. Like, I, I can't remember exactly, but you were, you were going, well, you know, the, the thing is, it's, it's when you get this many plies and, you, and you're like, you just went into the whole Myron thing. And I'm like, man, this guy knows his shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was always, you know, I always, um, I, I came to drumming late. 
in, in my life. But I think I was always a drummer because I always responded. I remember, you know, I grew up at a time when um, I was born in the 50s. So um, the, the music that was on the radio, for the most part, was nothing that I, I could embrace, you know, until, you know, later on into the 60s. But every now and then, uh, like Bobby Darin, Beyond the Sea, the drum trap on that was phenomenal. And I remember yeah. hearing that in my parents' car and going, whoa, yeah, I can listen to this song. You know, but, <laughs> but most of them, you know, Pat Boone, Love Letters in the Sand, probably not. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, that's not going to work for me. But, uh, but it's funny, I was there when music changed. And I was born at the right time because yeah. the people that I got to listen to it, as, as a young person formulating, you know, my own musical tastes and whatnot, I mean, we had, Giants. I mean, we had John Coltrane, Giant Steps. We had Miles. Yeah. We had Tony. We had Jimi Hendrix. You know, we had Charlie Watts. We had the Beatles and the Stones. You know, we had, you could just go on and on and on. And it just kept getting better and better and better. You know, and, and all through the 70s, into the 80s and into the 90s. I mean, you saw this amazing, all the way through Nirvana. I mean, amazing musicianship, amazing songwriting you know, change of direction, pretty awesome, you know, to yeah. you look back on, when I look back on my whole life and all the people that I got to see play live, you know, uh, Buddy Rich a number of times, you know, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, has, whether or not you aspire to be that guy, you know, which I never did, there's no way that that isn't so amazingly inspirational, you know, that yes. it, it actually, yep. you know, you just get so motivated. You know, when you hear one of the great, I, I remember hearing Tony for the first time and it was like, oh, my God, you know what I mean? It, yeah. it was just yep. it just changed the game, you know. Yeah. Well said, Myron. Well said. I, I know. I and I, I feel like we, you know, those of us that are like of a certain age, we we I think we you know, we wear that as a badge of honor that like we were there when this shit was really happening in real time. Right. And and that's pretty cool. I mean, it's great. We can people can look back at that, but. Like to be there, I, I'm a, a couple years behind, but um, but I I remember in the '60s, like all these things happening. I remember Jimi Hendrix, like be being aware of him and the Doors and these bands that were like breaking ground and and. Uh, I got a funny yeah. Jimi Hendrix story. You know, um, when I was young, I, we had five kids and we didn't have a lot of money. You know, we didn't have. In fact, we didn't have very much money at all. And I was with my mother. You know. And she was shopping and she was in Hills department store. And so what I would do is I would go to the record racks, you know what I mean? And just like, look, just look at it. I, so I saw the first Are You Experienced album. And I, I went back to my mother and I said, I got to have this album. She goes, you don't even have a record player. I, said, <laughs> I know, but I need the album. And she bought me that album. And I would take it with me to people that had record players. And make oh, most man. of it, and some of them didn't get it, you know. And I would make them listen to Are You Experience. <laughs> and it was like, no, you wow. need to you need to love this song. Okay, Foxy Lady, you need to love this song. Oh man. Yeah, but that, uh, and then that explains I, a lot. Yeah, and then when I'm I first started playing the first three records that I got my first drum set was. I got a it was a bicycle with a refrigerator on it. Okay, and I, it had popsicles in it. So I sold it for the whole summer. And I lived in a neighborhood with a lot of hills. So I was in pretty good shape by the end of the summer. 
So I made, I think, $400. And, you know, I, I showed my mother, I said, I got $400. I, I want to get a drum set. And she goes, uh, she took $200. <laughs> and she goes, okay, if you can get a drum set for $200, you can get a drum set. So there was a place called Ducey Music in Anton, Ohio. And uh, I went in there. And the guy that worked there was this guy, Del Sinchak, who was, believe it or not, an accordion player. And he played like in polka bands, right? But he was a great guy. So I saw this Rogers drum set, two wings and a biscuit, like two twelves and sixteen. You know, yeah. but but it was champagne peak sparkle, and I could live with that. You know, I could yeah. do that. You know, so, and, but it was like three hundred bucks. And I told him, you know, I only have two hundred dollars. He goes, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the drum set for two hundred dollars, but you owe me a hundred dollars. So whenever you get like ten bucks or something, come in, and and that's how I got my first drum set. You know, but it, that's it had so a couple cool. zills and cymbals. So the only place I could put it in in Behind my parents' bedroom, uh, because we had like five kids, so three boys in one room, two girls in another. You know, there wasn't a lot of space, but there was a, a something that would have been a bathroom. But they had, you know, had pipes in it to be a bathroom, but they never made it a bathroom. So I put the drums in there, and it was so small that once I put the drums in there, I had to go in and out the window <laughs> in order to get in. You couldn't open the door. It was like everything was right there. So that's so I did that like over you know, in 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 the course of about four months, I had three albums that that I you know I would I were like biblical to me and they were Desiree Gears by Creed, first Jimi Hendrix record and the first Led Zeppelin record. Now I didn't know that Ginger Baker had two bass drums, you know what I mean, and, and yeah. that served me well because you know I developed my foot thinking that that's what you do, but everything I played I played single stroke. Because I, I had no, and I, I knew it didn't sound quite right. I couldn't ever figure it out. So I joined my first big rock band. I quit high school. Not, and I'm not encouraging anybody to do this. If you're listening, yeah, people don't quit high school. But um, I did. And I joined this band, Freeport. And we're playing in Cincinnati, Ohio, at a place called Reflections. And we love this place because sounded great. The PA was great. It was a big room, great lights. But in the middle of the week, we played there for a whole week. But on Wednesday night, they would have a different band, you know, like a, a big national band. So the guy says, you know, you got to strike your drums down because uh, we have the Mahavishnu Orchestra. I go, Orchestra? <laughs> anyway, I don't do that, you know, I, you know, because I got, I don't know, I went out and had fun because I was young. So I wake up the next day, I go, oh, you know, I got to, I got to turn my drums down. So I come in and the guy lets me in, you know, the, the bar guy. He's, you know, putting beer kegs in or whatever. And I'm tearing my drums down. And there's this bang on the door. But I'm looking around at these, these giant, I've never really seen road cases. These giant cases, you know, bang, bang, bang on the door. And I go and I open the door up. And there's a guy there wearing Jim Brown's number. Okay. Big, athletic, strong looking dude. Okay. He comes in and he starts, you know, opening the cases and putting the drums up. So I figured, wow, this guy's a roadie. He's in amazing shape, you know, tremendous shape. And he sits down after he gets these Zippo's drums, more drums than I'd ever seen, you know, two, two or three of everything. And <laughs> sits down and just taps, beam, 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 boom, 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 bo
whack, and then he goes into what I learned later was Bible transformation. It was like it, it was a mesmerizing moment, obviously, and I had no idea what was happening. That all of a sudden the rest of the band comes in, <coughs> pardon, they start doing their sound check. It's amazing. I, I mean, I've never heard anything like that, you know. Yeah. And I, I, to this day, there's not a lot like that out there um, that anyone can hear. But what happens is after the check, and Billy wants to hear the sound of his drums. <laughs> so all of a sudden, Jan Hammer and McLaughlin start like arm wrestling. Jan Hammer wins. <laughs> he sits down on the drums. He's a thousand times better than I am. You know, not even a hundred, <laughs> like a thousand. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, uh, it, it was like being dunked in water. It was like being waterboarded. You know what I mean? After the players, it's, uh, it, and it was just incredible. So I, you know, I stumbled up enough nerve to go up to Billy and, and I asked him, I said, you know, we set your drums up. You, you, do, you did this thing across the drums. I go, phenomenal. I go, what is that? He goes, just looks at me. He goes, that's a double circle. <laughs> okay, next question. And, and I go, okay, double circle. He goes, yeah, two strokes with each hand. That's looking at me like I got two heads. You know what I mean? And, and you know, I had to walk in. I, I looked apart. Um, and then he goes, you got to get, he goes, you got to get a book called Stick Control by George Lawrence Stone. And I go to him, but I can't read music. But my voice is higher, but I can't read music. <laughs> and he goes, you don't have to read music. He goes, R-L, R-L. And he turns his back on me. <laughs> oh, to, man. He used to say, the next day, I'm in there. I said, you got a book called Stick and Drill on Dirt Church. So I goes, of course. I, go, I guess everybody got the book with me. But I got the book. Uh, and then that, you know, that became, that's what I did. And it did have R-L-R-L on it. Now, I didn't get all of the, you know, like the transitions from triplets to whatever. <laughs> right. And then later on in life, I figured that out too. But that's where I got the earliest sort of, you know, instruction. You know, yeah, or direction yeah. is from Billy Cobb. Not bad. Right? What a what not bad at all, man. <laughs> wow, firsthand. I mean, a lot of us got hip to Billy Cobb from listening to Mahavishnu and going, <clears throat> Oh my god, what is that? You know, yeah, but that is an incredible story to like see him do, 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 do. <sighs> yeah, and, and, and yeah. if you see him play, you you know how he went across those drums. It was like, yeah. I had it was like a force of nature. You know what I mean? It was a tidal yeah. wave. It was no, not even a tidal wave. It was a tsunami. It was uh, more energy, technique, and creative expression than I had ever heard displayed by anybody on any instrument. You know, and yeah. then the fact that he was, you know, exactly. Yeah, and and he played with all that with plays with all that power, but still has all that finesse. Is still oh, yeah. to me like yeah. It's, I mean, when he came down. It's, it's from a whisper to a scream. You know, you see that technique doesn't change. Like a yeah. great golfer, they don't change the swing. They change the club. You know, and Billy didn't change his technique. He played inside his technique. It's just where he could go on that, you know, because yeah. of his, yeah. you know, not only his amazing skills, but his physical prowess was, was you know, life-changing. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. Wow. Great story. And and you and you mentioned at the beginning, you said you started late playing. And I I remember that to you telling yeah. me that 
you started off really as a singer, right? I mean, yeah. in terms of music. That's what I wanted to be. You know, I had yeah. great moves. I didn't sing that good. <laughs> you know, my daughter's <laughs> an amazing singer, Gigi Blumhoff, incredible. Yes, yes. I, on the other hand, you know, I looked cool, you know, and I moved good. But I had more in common with Iggy than I did with Freddie Mercury. You know what I mean? It was, you know, that kind of a yeah. voice, you know. But the drummer didn't show up, so I thought I was better than the drummer by a lot. So I thought, well, maybe that's what I should do, you know. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I always felt it in, inside my body. So to sit down and play it really wasn't that hard, you know. And yeah. like this thing to me came pretty, pretty, pretty naturally, you know. I didn't have to think about, you know, playing a, a beat. I could, I could just do it. Yeah, absolutely. And natural. And when you mentioned Hendrix, um, so you like when you said you didn't have a record player, you knew the songs maybe from hearing them on the radio. No, I would go over people's houses and say, hey, dude, I need to borrow your record player for an hour. (laughs) And I would do the same. Yeah, I did the lift the needle, drop it on the track. Lift the needle, drop it on the track. You know, I mean, until I had it down and then I would go (laughs) before I forgot. You, I, I just want to jump to this. I'd made a comment when I was making notes. And the first time I saw you play on, I wore this for you, Myron, MTV. I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> when, and I think it was maybe Promises in the Dark, one of the, one of the early videos, Pat Benatar band videos. And uh, I remember thinking to myself and, and hearing you play too, you reminded me of like a cross between Mitch Mitchell. And I later learned he was a big influence. Mitch Mitchell Cute. and the... Yeah, and the visual aspect of like Terry, our hero Terry, Bo- our friend Terry Bozeman. Oh, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. like all the all the cool visual, like you couldn't you, you couldn't take your eyes off you. I mean, the shit you were doing behind the drums, no one's ever done that. I mean, you yeah, know, and, well, part and, of it was it was harder to hit a moving target. I really wasn't that good. <laughs> so, so yeah, there was no chicken wire at every gig, so I had to just make sure. <laughs> I didn't want to make it easy for him. no. You know, what's funny is that I, I, I didn't pick up on, on Zappa and Terry until I, li- I was living in New York City playing in Derringer, Rick Derringer's band. And um, I lived on 14th Street, and the Palladium was on 14th Street. Mm. And uh, Ron Delson, who ran the Palladium, liked me, so he would let me in for free to every single concert. And I, want, I think it was one of the Halloween concerts that I went with was the first time that I saw Terry and oh my God. I said, but we had so much in common on a lot of levels. I mean, yeah. he had the same, we both had this energy level. You know what I mean? Obviously his technique was far beyond mine, but we both had a way of attacking the drums. Um, yeah. That was very uh, physical. And we both, we both move when we play. I mean, the rhythm flows through him the same way the rhythm flows through me. I mean, it's more complex in his, in his instance in mind, months of work, but, but it, there's a similar, we're, we're coming from a similar place, you know, and, yeah. and we're close in age. I, I think um, a year or two, you know. Yeah, I think he's, he's a few years older than you, I think. Yeah, like two years older, I think. I mean, it's, yeah. so we're listening to the same people, you know, yes. as we're growing yeah. up, you yeah. know. Uh, he understanding it better than I. <laughs> but, but I mean, both of us, you know, like, you know, Tony, you could tell we had seen Tony Williams play. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, you could tell that we had seen Mitch Mitchell. You could tell that we had, you know, 
uh, listen to Ginger Baby. You know what I mean? Yep. You know, the bap, 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 bap. That's in my head forever. Yeah. Thanks to him, you know. Absolutely, yeah. And and I, I one of the first things I noticed, you know, as I, I studied the way both of you guys played was the way you both strike like you would strike a, you know, set your cymbals up high. And it was like that way you'd, you know, it's just, I remember thinking like, wow, he, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities there. And, yeah. and, uh, and then a lot of, and then it fast forward to one of the greatest, I think one of your greatest performances was our dear friend, Randy Castillo. They had that great benefit for Randy and, and Hollywood around 20 years ago, right? Early 2000s yeah. maybe. Yeah. And you yeah. played manic depression with the, the house band and killed it just completely killed it it was that was well, yeah i mean that that was because of the mitch thing i mean it never never really went away there's certainly you know it's funny uh when you these things go in and they become part of the vocabulary I, I i don't think everybody first of all everyone should aspire to be as original as you possibly can try sure. to bring something yeah. to the party but how you get on that path is by finding people that inspire you and then trying to dig down deep into what they did and then more importantly why did he play that of all the yeah. things he could have played you listen like John Bonham you know bum, bum, ba, bum, bum, bum. I mean he could play it like that he could have played it like that but he didn't which is like a yeah. 30 shuffle in his own interpretation you know so he heard Bernard Purdy, and as a result of that, that went in. He thought about that. He said, that's a great idea. I hear this. And he gave us another way of going, yeah. same as Jeff McCarver did, you know, uh, drinking from the same fountain, you know what I mean? Yes. Coming up with two distinct things, but still, you know, serving that song perfectly. You know, yeah. not just playing it because, hey, I got this cool drum beat I'm going to play, you know. <laughs> no, they listen to that song and they go, I can take this song to the next level by doing this. You know, and yeah. it makes people, yeah. you know, want to dance, you know, makes you want to move. Absolutely. Makes you happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've, you know, I, I think of some incredible parts you composed, you came up with and all those Pat Benatar songs and uh, similar, you know, creativity. You know, you were obviously you know, maybe hearing something, some influence by somebody, whether, like you say, whether it was, could have been Terry, could have been Mitch, could have been anybody, but then you'd take it and make it this whole other thing that was yours. And, uh, and, right, and I'll and just say this. That's what we should aspire to as artists. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah. Is, and, and you should think of yourself as an artist. Maybe it's yeah. finger painting. Maybe it's fine design. It's still art. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Punk yeah. rock. This is important to me as jazz music is. You know, I don't differentiate. I mean, The Clash, I love deeply. Miles Davis, I love deeply. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know? I remember you telling me at, at, a, <clears throat> at a Pat Benatar gig 30-some-odd years ago, you said something like, um, how did it sound after the, after the show? Because <clears throat> uh, you made some reference. You said, well, we, I want it to sound like the, the Clash. I wanted us to sound like the, you know, and and I got it. I got where, where yeah, you're coming exactly, from. Yeah. 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 I mean, we used to call it the PRV factor, punk rock violence factor. You know, like <laughs> Spider and I would play 
And a lot of those songs we cut by ourselves. You know, I mean, we, just he and I. You know, and then yeah. people would play afterwards because there was a certain thing that happens when him and I play. There's, you know, it, and our gift is probably our curse because it will happen every time we play. You know, I mean, you will get that sound. You may not always want that sound, but that sound, <laughs> but that sound will happen. You know, what I mean, you yeah. go, okay, yeah. that's that sound. You know, and um, sometimes we didn't want to dilute that. You know, we just wanted to full on this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was all fired up. That's, is that like a great example of, of, it, of that, that happening? Cause that, that, you know, the story will fire up, right? I do, but I think you should tell it if it's yeah, okay. If you don't I, I'm going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> all right. So okay. we we're pretty much done with the record and uh, they found the record company found this song all fired up and it, it wasn't a bad song, but it was by an Australian guy. You know, so the references in the song or anything that Patty related to lyrics, you know what I mean? So she goes, I think I want to do the song. Tyrone, go home and rewrite the lyrics. It's like, okay, all right, so I'll do that. So I'm there, you know, listening to it over and over again. And, and I was, t- you know, I was just at the point, after an album, you're pretty, pretty much burnt. And yeah. I thought if yeah. I had anything to say, I probably said it before. You know, right now I'm trying to recharge my batteries. I'm trying to draw something. Can't think of anything. I got a blank page in front of me. And uh, so finally, all of a sudden, the hook is that I came up with was I believe there comes a time when everything just falls alive. We live and learn from our mistakes. The deepest cuts are healed by faith. I'll fire it up. Mm-hmm. When I had that, Boom! Everything else, came, you know, everything else came out. Some yeah. of the lines they used, and then Patty came up when she heard that. She came up with a couple lines. So, you know, we have what we needed. So we go in to cut the track, and we're in Oceanville, and um, I, I can't get the drum sound, you know. And I'm going, and I listen to my drums at my drums, and sound great. And, and there was this engineer that they were running, like a young guy, it was not the right guy for that band at that time, you know. Yeah, and. Um, I come in the next day and I run into Paul Lonnie, who's a tremendous engineer and a good friend of mine. He said, What are you doing? I said, Well, we're here with an ocean wing. You know, I'm having trouble getting the drums out. He goes, What? You've never, your drums. He goes, I'll get you drums out. He walks in literally in, in five minutes. It sounded amazing. Well, that kind of pissed Spider off because, you know, and, and one thing led to another. And he and I like brothers, you know, but we get in. And, we get to a, like a little bit of a tip, but not a big deal. So then we start playing. And I, I can tell he doesn't want to be this song. You know what I mean? So after about take five, you know, <laughs> bum, 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 bum. It's a different song is in my head. You know, and I go, um, I kind of call him out on it. You know, and he's frustrated and I'm frustrated. And one thing leads to the other. And we go at each other. I mean, we go at each other. So they rip us apart, you know. And I have all this adrenaline in my body, you know, because if I don't kill you in the first 10 minutes, what am I going to do with that? You know, <laughs> so I just start running, you know, and, and, you know, I'm running down sunset and I'm doing the thing. And I take like three laps till my heart is like normal. And I come walking through the door and um, Spider was in there just screwing around with that beat. And I just sit down. Boom. And we just start playing. And we do that one take. And that's the record. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. everything that 
you know, we went through cathartically, wound up on 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 tape, and even the break where she stopped singing and I do the drum roll, it yeah. fell apart. And I just did the drum roll, and we all knew to come in on that chorus thing. It, it was like a magical moment. And Keith Forsey, who was working with me along the record, was like the look on his face was like. You know, what was that? You know, because we've been like torturing each other, you know, for 10 tapes on this thing with no commitment. And then just to really do that. That's amazing, really man. But in yeah. that band, you know, at that time, it was important that Spider and I were lined up, you know, and normally we were, but, you know, he, neither one of us wanted to do that song. I got to tell you, we didn't want to yeah. do it, but. But once we said yes, we're, we're committed to it. You know, if I say I'm going to do it, I do it. You know, and so does he. Well, that take you know? <laughs> what, what you guys, that's a great story. And what you guys got out of it is still holds up. Like, I know. It's, every time I hear man. it, I, I'm impressed with it. I go, damn, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> but and I think the guitar solo is live. You know, I'm trying to remember. I think he just started playing, and then later on, he put rhythm underneath it, which we would do a lot. You yeah, know, he was yeah. such an incredible, and still is an amazing guitar player. Oh that, man, is you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, like we'd be playing, and he could play lead and rhythm at the same time. I mean, yeah. it, when we were done, just drums and guitar sounded like a, like a tape just, or, or a song. I mean, all of our demos sounded like the White Stripes before the White Stripes, and just guitar and drums. <laughs> And big, you know, we had this uh, a blaster that, that could record, you know, a big one. And Spider dropped yeah, it on the yeah. ground, you know, and then when we picked it up, it did something to the compressors and it crunched everything down. And uh, it was a picture of the three of us. Yeah, that was so, that was that was like 10 years ago when you guys played in Boston. Oh, my God. Yeah. One of the anniversary tours. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> anyway. The, yeah. So in any yeah. case, that's that's what we did these really crunchy demos on it. And we would then go in the studio and spend a lot of money trying to get the same time. So there you go. That's great, man. That that that's I mean, I, I there's a bunch of questions I want to get to before we sure. you know run out of time and you you give me the hook on this whole thing. But um first of all, I, I want to say, and many people have commented, and I'm gonna speak for a lot of people that have commented about this, but it was so great, and I texted you afterward to say so great to see you playing in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And, oh, I was, and, yeah, uh, it was great. Great to have that moment that, together. You know, yeah. Great. Thank you. You sounded great, Myron. And, and it was just a bit, you know, just knowing you as long as I have it and, and the history with you and Patty and Neil, it was beautiful to see you guys playing. And it was great to, to share that with Chris. I mean, he actually, if you look at it chronologically, I think Chris has been in the band longer than Myron. If you add up all the years. I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah. So it was great to, you know, for both of us to to experience that. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not to leave out Chris Rallis. No, so. He's a great drummer. Yeah, great guy. Great, great drummer. drummer. Yeah. yeah. And you worked and you with know, we, him. You go at Simmons. Him. Yeah. We worked together at Simmons and he was a great drummer. And he was like, you know, we were in our early 20s, mid 20s. Right. He was, you know, everybody's trying to make it and he's trying to make it on the scene. And he gets out there and he... One thing after another, Kenny Loggins, I think, yeah. for quite a while, and yeah. Christopher Cross, maybe for a yeah. bit, and yeah, <clears throat> and then uh, you know, fantastically good all around drummer. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, he can play rock and play a, a bunch of other yeah. different styles. He's really good. 
Really good and a, and a good dude. And I think he right. he used to sing too. I remember he was in a top forty band when I met him, and he was he was a singer, like a good singing drummer. Oh wow, too. that's cool. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. yeah. I didn't so, know that. <clears throat> okay, get ready, Myron. Lots ready. lots of comments and questions. Um, people, a lot of people have asked the same question: Whatever happened to his unique drums that he played throughout the years? And I think he's referring to the Ludwig camo kit that everybody's remembers so well. Right. Well, the camo kit, um, I loaned to Greg Bissonnette. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Greg Bissonnette, so speaking of Greg Bissonnette, has a YouTube channel and he yes. talks about that very drum set <laughs> uh, that I loaned him to do a Satriani album. And then subsequently, um, I, I, I saw, kind of sold it to him. I actually gave it to him for what I sold it to him for, but uh, I don't think he has it, but that's the Japanese kit. So, oh, yes. That. Yep. Yeah, that, I still have that kit. You know, you um, have this one, right? Yeah, right, right. I mean, I didn't, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, I, I played my Viva Las Vegas uh, drum workshop kit because I'm a drum DW endorser for years and years and years. But I did yeah. bring out on the left hand side um, the the 18 inch Tom Tom was there from this kit because everybody wanted to see if I still had the kit. So I brought one out. That, that was so hip. That was so cool yeah. that you did that. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> that was great. Um, yes. And, and thanks for mentioning Greg's uh, YouTube channel. I mentioned it on the intro and, uh, and thanks for a good segue. Yeah. Um, well, perfect. Cause he talks about that kit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I was going to mention you were the one that introduced me to Greg all those years ago uh, on a trip into Simmons, you brought Greg with you and he was this, you know, new young guy, you know, and I want you to meet this guy, Greg Bissonette, you know, yeah. good guy. And, and uh, what a player. I remember, yeah, and you yeah, said monster. something like, uh, "Yeah, you said he's a thoroughbred. This kid's a thoroughbred. Like, wait till you hear him play." Yeah. And yeah. yeah, I wasn't wrong about that. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and and you you sort of talked about well, maybe you didn't. You mentioned playing with Rick Derringer mm-hmm. um, when you were in New York, and and someone asked a percussion discussion asked um, how you went from playing with Rick Derringer to Pat Benatar. How that sort of Okay, well, evolution. That the links there are um, Mike Chapman, who produces Patty's first record, and and a couple records later on with us, Invincible, most notably, and um, and uh, Neil Giraldo. Because at the I went into Derringer in I think seventy five, and we I was in the band a couple years, and then we were going to change the guitar players. You know, so I wanted Neil in the band, you know, because he and I had been wanting to play together for years. We went all the way back to Cleveland. I met him when, when I met Neil, I was 18 and he was 15. Okay, so that's how far back we went. And I, I just, you know, really wanted him in the band, you know, and, and, and he, they brought him in the band, you know, and he played guitar and piano. And uh, coming out of that, um, we segged into the Benatar band, um, you know, and, and Chapman came up to me in the mug club and said, Hey, you know, I'm looking for people. And I told him about Neil and Chip Aldridge was there. And, um, you know, once they heard Neil, you know, that decision was made, you know, and, yeah. uh, he wound up being not only the, the lead guitar player, but the musical director, you know, and, and the, uh, ultimately the producer. You know, he had a lot to say production-wise on everything he played, you know, because the way he plays, 
lends itself to production. I mean, he's very, you know, his musical knowledge is, is deep, you know. Yeah. So quarterly, he's got a great background. He plays keyboards. He understands harmonic structures. He understands what to put underneath the vocalist to lift them up. You know, on, on, if you study his solos, Promises in the Dark, it's a great one. Because the note she stops on is the note he starts on, okay? And that there's no accident there. I mean, he just hears that and just takes it to the next level, you know, usually in yeah. one or two takes. <laughs> so, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. That, yeah. That song is, is such an amazing composition you know i yeah. you know I, I i again when i hear that today 40 years later it's still like you know and i, I remember playing that in a band and going god the, myron grombacher what what a motherfucker making a song like this impossible to play it's impossible oh, yeah. to all those all those hits the, all those the, accents yeah. and yeah. those singles oh, that volume you know <laughs> <laughs> i got that from yeah. Billy. <laughs> thank you Billy. <laughs> Yeah, no, crazy great tune, man. But the, drum, um, the Japanese drums are alive and well. You know, I keep certain ones that are sentimental to me. You know, the, I have the, uh, there's a tobacco sunburst Ludwig kick that I played on Tropico, you know, which yeah. is an amazing sounding instrument. So I still have that. Uh, there's certain BW kits that I, that I still have, you know, and, and we'll, we'll always have, you know. Um, yeah. And then I'm paying storage on all that, so I don't have to face up to it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> My wife asked me from time to time, "Are you still paying storage fees?" I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> you want me to bring it home and leave it in the living room? You know. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've had that conversation. <laughs> yeah. See, I noticed a new Camco kit. You're starting to run out of real estate, there, brother. <laughs> I know. I got a bunch. I think I told you this in the other room, but I just got this kit a couple weeks ago or a little over a week ago. I used it last night on a gig. It sounds ridiculous. I know. They, they sound great. I haven't. Wow. I, I don't think I still have my campers. I think I I got rid of like like 30 drum sets and like 100 snare drums like 15 years ago. You know, I think campers went there, too. Or they could yeah. be buried in the locker. I found, you know, I had an amazing set of Slingerland radio games that I played on the Blues album and probably not on anything else with a 28-inch bass drum, a 13-inch, a 16-inch, and a six-and-a-half one-piece maple shell. Wow. That are, yeah, with the diamond inlays on it. Um, just an amazing sound of kit. I'll, I'll oh, always man. keep that one. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, then yeah, Dylan stole my Gretchen's pretty much. I remember that. You told me yeah, that story. Yeah. 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 I, I remember you telling me. Yeah. I know. Dylan is Myron's son. And uh, I, I remember you telling me years ago, you said, yeah, you know, I got all these new drums. That, uh, Dylan wants my old Gretsch and he wants, he only wants to play vintage drums. I'm like, yeah. this kid's, this kid's going somewhere. Yeah, no, yeah. He's got a set of, of uh, the jazz uh, uh, cherry wood kit from DW2. And, uh, and pretty much, it's either the vintage crashes or that kit. And that's, you know, he's yeah. a purist. That's it. You know, old that's symbols. You know. Yeah. I try to give him stuff. He goes, nah, I don't even want that. <laughs> <laughs> I try to teach him stuff, and it's like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Funny. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. A couple more questions here. I hope I can get to all these. Um, Bob Ruthven had, had a, a couple of questions. I'll 
in here. First of all, he said, great tribute to your old Ludwig Japanese finish kit. We're just talking about when you had the floor tom, mm-hmm. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert. Um, great to see you playing with Pat and Neil again. Question, how involved were you in what was the history, Patrick Foley, of the design of your camo kit, Japanese Ludwigs, and, all, and the all-fired-up Tama kit? Okay, uh, 100% involved. Yeah. You know, yeah. So those, the, the Japanese kit, uh, was designed by really Jeff Shonis. You know, um, it was his idea. Um, I think I, I tweaked a thing here, a, a thing there, but pretty much Jeff and Pat did that. Yeah. Jeff did that, you know, and Pat executed the design. Now, the, the Tiger Stripe kit came from a Tiger Stripe shirt that you see me wear on the Precious Time album cover that was given to me by Chris Paul who was my road manager in Derringer and then later on road manager with Patty for a bit. And he actually wore that shirt in Vietnam when he was agreeing oh, to wow. with the Montyards. So it had a lot of significance to me. Um, as I, you know, I, I missed out on the being drafted by the lottery, basically, you know, the, my, my lottery number, I was the last year of the draft that it was eligible. My father was a captain in the army. I had a hair down to here. I wasn't going yeah. to Canada, you know what I mean? Because, you know, so I was going to Vietnam if they pulled my number and they didn't. You wow. know, but a lot yeah. of my friends went and a lot of, you know, the, not so much my friends as older brothers. My brother-in-law, Floyd, he was there, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but that, yeah. you know, that still resonates with me because that was the time I grew up. Yeah, and it's, it's very polemic, you know, it, you know, it's, it, I was, I was, because my father was a captain in the Army Air Corps during World War II, I, and, you know, I had a different view of military people, you know, and, yeah. um, and I came from Youngstown, Ohio, which is really a small town. You know, not a lot of people look like me, you know, uh, very long hair then, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I just walked the night, you know, for years. And, and then finally I got to New York and I could take a breath. You know? Yeah, man. Yeah. Different times. Different times. Um, yeah. And the last question from Bob is, uh, I like this one. Also, did you incorporate electronics, Simmons, Lindrum, et cetera, into your sound in the studio? And how did you get the ambient Tom sound for this for the studio out of We Belong, the, the ambient sound in, in We Belong? Okay. Here's He's the deal great. on We Belong. Tropical was really our arty moment to have. You know, so when we went to do We Belong, Spider had given me a Roland data away for Christmas. You know, so I set up that pattern with the hand claps. Yep. And then I suspended. That Ludwig Basin that I'm referring to, the, the uh, tobacco symbols there, in the air off of a big mic stand, okay, hung by a rope. And then on the ground, I had like 30 snare drums upside down in the room, and I beat on Spider's case with a stick on an acoustic guitar case. That's the bass drum, that's the snare drum, and we played it live because, you know, there was no sample wow. then. And so, boom, whack. Boom, and then that one roll that you hear, yeah, which was one take by the way. Um, really gated sound, really gated, super gated sound. 
Uh, yeah. Inspired, obviously, by Phil Collins, you know, because when you heard yeah. the intruder, you know, that Peter Gabriel record where he used those symbols of all this is phenomenal. Um, yeah. And it was uh, Ludwig, uh, you know, single-headed uh, toms, melodic toms that I had. And just yeah. Yeah. one rolled out, you know, and that was it. Yeah. 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 What a so great swap. Basically, that was, I mean, we had him in a big room, gated heavily. You know, uh, focus rights, pull text, the console, good side. Yeah, <laughs> great. I mean, you always, always had great. And was uh, you mentioned Keith Olson? Um, he re- he produced er- some of the early, like Crimes he, of Passion. He did Crimes or? of Passion. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. He's producer on that, and and um, Precious Time too. I think now that I think about Maybe it. Yeah, precious, so, okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I learned a lot working with Keith. He was a great producer, you know. Now, he had, you know, in the beginning, we kind of butted heads because he went for a real 70s California kind of sound. And I like the big open sound. That's not your sound. Not me. Yeah. Uh, But he called me in to do a session. So he had this amazing group of guys like Bob Glob is a bass player, Alan Pascal on keyboards. Ooh. Trying to remember who, uh, maybe Mike Landau was playing guitar. And and normally, Mike Baird was his drummer. He was like the guy that he used on things where there weren't a band. And I think Baird was booked or something, so we called me up to do the session. And I'm in there with these guys, and, and um, you know, Pete goes, uh, uh, you know, I, I want less calm. I mean, Pete did the snare drum. So I get taken up the tape on the snare drum. So he punches back, and we do a take. He punches back, and he goes, you know, Tyrone, um, I want a fatter sound. Could you take your wallet? And I go, well, if you want a fatter sound, let's use your wallet. And he goes, can I see you in the control room? <laughs> I go in, and he goes, you can't do that. You can't do that. My guys, I mean, you can't say that to me. I said, well, I, it's a joke. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was it. So maybe it's just, I didn't do a lot of outside sessions with him back to that, but you know, but uh, yeah, he was good. Oh man, I I met him one time. He was producing Night Ranger, right? In the and I was friends with Kelly Keegi, and I went to a guy, studio. Too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I forget where the where the studio was. It wasn't it wasn't uh, Sound City. I don't. It might have been Sound City. Now that yeah. I think about it, it would have been the mid eighties. Yeah, I Were mean, st- mid eighties. He's got right by Sound City, right right across the way. He had Good Night LA, which was the studio okay. he built. So it's probably. I that. think I I think that's what it was. If it was a new state of the art, yeah, yeah, and and he, you know, just I remember meeting him. Kelly introducing me to him, and he was really funny. He was talking about we were talking about you because he had Crimes of Passion, you yeah. know, uh, you know, gold or platinum record on the wall, and uh, he was telling a funny story about Joe Walsh back when Joe was drinking, rating his wine, you know, I guess he had a great wine collection, you know, uh, wine cellar. And Joe's drinking like these $300 bottles of, you know, French wine. (laughs) He's like, what are you doing? But anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, here's another thing. A lot of people didn't know. He was in a band called The Music Machine. Okay. And they had a song, Talk, Talk. Talk, talk, the talk, talk, and it was fuzz bass. Not me a complication. That's all. Yeah. But their thing was everybody wore one black glove. So the second day of recording, 
I, I went out and bought a black glove. And when he came in, there was one black glove on the console. <laughs> he went crazy. I never, I never owned up to it. Like, who did it? Who was there? I mean, he was like, then he got real paranoid. Like, like he was being stalked or something. I thought I saw something in there. I got you had black, big black hat. You know, I don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah, I lit him up a little bit. Oh, my God. That is great. Um, all right, I'm going to jump around a couple of these questions. My friend Steve Ford, what made you choose the drum and cymbal brands that you use? Okay. Um, originally, uh, I'm playing the first set that I bought when I was in Derringer. I wasn't getting three drums. I bought a set of Gretches, okay? And I loved them. And it was a 24, a 13, a 16, and an 18. And they were the ebony wood with rosewood hoops. I thought that oh, made me really cool because I had rosewood hoops. Yeah, and beautiful. Peisty symbols and Peisty symbols purely for two reasons. John Bonham played them. Reason number one. Reason number two. If you broke one and you were playing the two o twos, the next one sounded exactly the same. Now that sounds yes. lame, but no. I was breaking a lot of stuff because I didn't. My technique wasn't that good. And my velocity was much better than my technique. I'll put it that way. You know, so I hit those things pretty hard. You know, and I didn't always, you know, pull up. Yeah. Sometimes yep. I went right through them, and you're going to break them. So the next one out of the case on a 2002 would sound the same. Of course, I favored, you know, Formula 602s in the studio and stuff because, it, you know, obviously a much richer, more yeah. varied, individualized sound. And those were. And, uh, yeah. I went to Leverage. I went to Leverage because. John Bonham. <laughs> I mean, that was the sound I liked. I liked a big resonant sound, you know, and yeah, I had sure. had a 26 inch, 15, 18, 20 inch natural maple wood kit, in, in, which was the first drum set that I really bought when I was in Freeport, you know, and that was a drum set that I played, which was, you know, and I was pretty much a little, not a Bonham clone, but I was very, very, very influenced by this band. You know, and um, subsequently, you know, when I start to endorse that brand, I'm looking for a big drum sound, and and I got it. Like when you listen mm -hmm. to Shadows of the Night, those those songs, Shadows of the Night, I, you know, I wanted it to sound like timpanis, you know, and they do. You know, they they were capable of that much range in, yeah. in the drum, and I was very happy with them. And then what happened is. I was on, you know, I'm on the road and I come back and there's, we, we would get fan mail back then. You know, you get stacks of letters, you know, from kids. And I got a letter from a kid. Yeah, I probably should have said it, but I didn't. And he told me that he had worked like mowing lawns and everything, you know, for two years, shoveling snow. He's from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. And he bought a set of Ludwig drums and he said they sound terrible and they have rivets in the side. And I'm going, why is he talking about it? I go, I'm not, I don't have any rivets on the side of any of my drums. So I go into the guitar center and I take a look and sure enough, they have these rivets all down the side of the cortex, which I was never a fan of anyway, but you know, they're not even glued properly. And when I'm hitting them, they sound terrible. So I had to fly to Chicago because they wanted to have a meeting with me about endorsement. And I went with Jeff, showed up. And they were coming up on, I think, their 40th anniversary. So I said, listen, I got an idea. Let's stop putting rivets in drums. First of all, this is even worse than that. I went into the meeting and 
Bill and, and his dad were there, and, and a bunch of guys from Sulphur, a bunch of you know, trumpet players and whatever. No, not whatever, but not drummers. I go, first of all, whose great idea was it to put rivets in drums? And Billy goes, actually, mine was dad's idea. And then <laughs> things got real quiet. I said, well, okay, let's move on. I said, here's my idea. We come out with a drum set, and we're going to call it the Black Beauty. Reintroduce the Black Beauty snare drum, you know, because they had to stop making it. You know, we'll have a black lacquer kit, you know, no cortex, no, you know, this is, this is going to be great. So I go home, and everyone says, oh, yeah, it's a great, a great idea. So they actually make me two prototypes of the Black Beauty. They sounded really good. I said, I think this is going to work. This is going to be great. Then they send me this mock-up of like a maple shell with like a an eagle, sort of. Uh, they said it was an eagle. I don't know. It's some kind of a bird in there in Walnut. And they decided that that's what they were going to do. And I just went, uh, okay, well, let me hear them. And then I went in and I heard them. And I said, you know, I got to go someplace else, you know, because yeah. I can't, you know, I, I can't endorse something if I know that it's not, they're not getting the drums I'm getting then I, I'm not playing the drums. You know, on my GW kit, it's possible for you to get that exact same kit from yeah. GW if you want. I mean, they'll reference the size of the shell. So, you know, but the quality is consistent and, um, sorry about that, consistent and um, state-of-the-art and, and constantly moving forward. Yeah, you know, yep. As opposed to Ludwig back then, had stopped, you know, they were regressing, you know, if anything. Yeah. Now, it's a much better product. I mean, in the last 10 years, they hit the ghost switch on, on the drums again. I hear them now, they sound like Ludwig drums, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, so they're, yeah. they're, they're making a really fine quality product again. And, and to, you know, to their benefit, because it's, you know, it's hard to get up off the ground and, and reinvent yourself and move forward. And they did that by just going back to what they did right. You know, making yeah. the shells that they used to make and giving you the the same degree of craftsmanship that they were always capable of doing. You know, so they're a right. great drum now. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yep. That's a and that's a great I knew that story, you know, most of it, and and um, I'm glad you you know you you cleared it. And I just want to read you a quick comment from a fellow Ohio friend yeah. by the name of Joe Vitale. Oh man, one of my favorite yeah. drums. The best drummer from Ohio. <laughs> he was the best of us. Yeah, he still is. Probably. Well, yeah, he's. I love the guy. And he plays yeah. flute. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a monster. He, he, he's a monster. Serious guy, Joe. Hello from both of us. Big love to you, buddy. And uh, he said, "Myron, Myron is a great drummer." And uh, where where to go? Where to go? Where to go? Uh, Myron is a great drummer and a great Ohio, great old Ohio friend. So, yeah. Yeah, we go back yeah. a long way. I used to see him play. You know what? I used to, believe it or not, we could hear James Gang when we were growing up. I mean, they played a place in Warren, Ohio, which was a a Baptist church. And they would play like at 11 or 12 in the afternoon for a couple of hours. And then they would play another place. And there was a place called the Gazebo Room. And I used to sneak in behind the, it was a bowling alley with like a nightclub in the bottom. And I found out that there were steps that led down. If you go through the pins, there's steps that lead down into the gazebo room. So I would sneak down in there and listen to the James Gang twice in one day. Joe Vitale was playing in a group called The Choir. 
And now and again, I would get to see them. And he was remarkable because he was, you know, he was, first of all, he had a road case with his drums inside it. And they lifted the top of the road case off and the whole set was set up. It was oh. phenomenal. And they were all wow. tacked up. Nobody else did that, right? It was amazing. Right. I said, what is that? You know? Yeah. But he would, <laughs> he'd be singing and playing amazingly. And then he'd reach over, grab a flute and take a flute solo while he was playing. Yeah. I don't you love slash hate guys like that, you know, yeah. that much talent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just got to stand in awe of it, you know, because not everybody like yeah. Dave Grohl, you go, wow, Dave yeah. Grohl, amazing. You know, we're yeah. lucky to have those guys. I mean, they're inspirational, know. you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. I, I remember realizing all these records that I was listening to were Joe Vitale and, uh, and just yeah, I mean, oh, so appreciating the, the Joe Walsh his, connection. I mean, the Barnstorm yeah. that that was a phenomenal band. I saw them a bunch of times. Yeah, they yeah. were great. Can and you also pass Dave, on bass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dave Abrazis, Pearl Jam drummer, says hello. Hey, and, uh, great drummer too. Big fan Good of yours. Yeah, great big drummer. Fan of his. Yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, um. So John Chris Peters says your drum sound was phenomenal in that area. And he says, why was it your tuning equipment, engineering, or just plain luck of circumstances? Yeah. Um, well, you make your own luck, you know? So yeah. That's yeah. what luck works. <laughs> yeah. I don't think luck there's any luck involved. Is, you know, you got to work your ass off and then get lucky. <laughs> wow. Um, no, it's a combination of all of this. You know, first of all, the microphone is going to hear the drum. So it yeah. starts at the drum. So you right. have to make sure you have to be aware of, I was hyper aware of like w what heads would do, what thickness of shells would do, what die cast hoops would do. I mean, you know, I studied all that. I used to take my drums apart and put them back together. You know what I mean? Just to try different things, you know? So I experimented a lot on my downtime. You know what I mean? Obviously you're not going to do that in the studio, but that conversely, you know, when I got into a creative moment, where I, they needed something, I pretty much could figure out how to get it out of my drums. And if, if your drum sounds like that, then the microphone is going to read that. But the, you know, the sophistication yeah. of that's available to you in a studio, especially a big studio, the best mics, you know, the best outboard gear, the best boards, the best, you know, studio tape machines are great kit. So there's a lot to be said for tape compression. You know, we were yes. hitting it hard. You know, and then putting it away, you know, yep. and then bringing it back to mix. So yeah. and and great engineers. Maybe you said that. To Phenomenal. Kim. I mean, the, that, the guys that work, the engineers I work with, with the best guys in the world. You know, so, yeah, it's a big world, but it, it, you know, it certainly recognizes being giants. I mean, Peter Coleman, phenomenal. George Tucker, phenomenal. You know, I, I could get on and on and on, and I don't want to start doing that because you know I don't want to leave anybody out. But yeah, God yeah. bless you all because you all helped me. You know, and um, and if you're listening to a record, you're not just listening to the band. You know, you're listening to the people that contributed to that product artistically. You know, and the, the guys that aren't recognized enough probably are the engineers. I mean, producers get, you know, a fair amount of recognition. But engineers get, you know, you don't realize, you know, what that yeah. guy does. And that guy does a lot. He does all the groundwork. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like a I just want to, for a movie, you know, you go. Yeah. I want to just jump back for one second, Myron, and before I forget this thought, when you mentioned Shadows of the Night and you mm -hmm. you talk about the drum sound, and to me, 
the 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 sound you got on that song i mean it was like they sound like because the song's about um you know i think of the video where it's like a it's a battle scene you know in in a war and you're you're flying in the plane i know i know that's not you i know that i know i know that's not your a lot of fan letters from germany I mean, a lot of I'm girls sure. in leader posting, you know, they dug that video. They loved it. No, I remember yeah. you telling me that was not your happiest moment, but no, no. you I were tell sitting my in kids a bar. I was on drugs. I wasn't, but I tell them I was. This is what I did. Well, you know, I had a drug habit. I would never sober. I would never do that. <laughs> it's a lie. No, no, I was just going to say, but the Tom Toms in that song sound like explosions. I mean, they, there's, they complement yeah. what's happening in that and that song so perfectly it's like and that's a great example of what you're talking about where you wanted that that sound i mean it's you well, listen and to that's, that and that's me and peter coleman you know spending an extra hour in the studio before everybody gets in you know yeah. and, and tweaking that out to where uh, what i heard in my head we we're hitting it hitting the tape with you know so when everybody walked in that was just there you know yeah. let's do this and and you know that carried the day pretty much were the drums really detuned, Myron? Would you have them like? Did they? They sound no, like they're, they're tuned so... very low, but they're not detuned. Yeah. I mean, there's no. They're not detuned. In them. No, I mean they were resonant. You know, very resonant. Yeah. They're, they're so yeah. big sounding, man. They're huge. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's great. I'm going to listen to it when we're done. I'm going to put yeah. that song on. It's yeah. it's, it's so Pretty great. Cool. Yeah. Um, there's this is a great question coming up right here from Kelly King. Um, first of all, I'm going to read. I'm going to skip that for a second. Neil Andrew Terry just says, Myron is on my <clears throat> quote, because of him, I started drumming list. Well, and I just cool. thought that was great because yeah, that. that's, that's great. That's beautiful, man. I mean, you know, we, we have our heroes like Ringo and, you know, people Charlie like that, Watts. that got us Charlie Watts. And that's beautiful. But I Kelly King has, story. I got to tell you. Oh yeah, I get it. Well, before I became me, a drummer, go ahead. Let me do yeah. this. I'll tell you. Why. Right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this Kelly King uh, question. Cause I think you'll like it. I hope I know the answer. First of all, first of all, Myron is insanely brilliant. Thank you for so many years of inspiration. Secondly, who would win an arm wrestling match between Myron and Kenny Aronoff? That'd be a tough one. You know, I put my I'm money back, on you. I'm back in shape, baby. So Aronoff, Look at you, Aronoff's yeah. a monster. We used to actually go at each other when we see each other. And if one guy saw the other guy first, you had the advantage because you could come in lower. You know yeah, I mean? <laughs> and we would actually wrestle each other from time to time. I love him. You know what a I do too. drummer he is. Yeah. And we got a lot in common in terms of, uh, of we just have a lot in common. I mean, we played around the same time, but some of the same people. You know. Yeah. And and I've, uh, yeah. I've been tackled by Kenny. Full, you know, full charge and a tackle, you know. So yeah. I, I and, and I used to wrestle in high school. I could, I could hold my own if we, if we got an even start, like you say. But he'd get the jump. He just yeah. like if he gets lower yeah. than you, you're, you're up. You're in the yeah. air, baby. That's it. Yeah, he's gonna dead pressure. <laughs> I'm, I want to, I want to hear the Charlie story. But one quick thing I'm going to mention. I don't know if you remember this. This would have been 30 years ago. I was out in L.A. on a on a trip, and we'd always get together, you and I, mm -hmm. and we went to an Italian restaurant. In Woodland Hills, it used to go to all the time. It was a place that you and Monica, it was like a, a family spot that you guys knew of. You, you, just, you selected it. And I said, well, Kenny's, um, I told Kenny I'd, I'd have dinner. You know, oh, yeah, have Kenny come. So we go to this really nice restaurant with the white tablecloths. Really, you know, you know the maitre d', you know the owner. 
And Kenny, every other word out of his mouth was F this. And, <laughs> and people, people yes. are that like your neighbors are like at the next table looking like going like, and, and you finally, I, I give you huge kudos for this. You finally said, Kenny, I know these people. I know this is our favorite restaurant. Can you please? And he went, oh, shit. Sorry. Oh, Myron. Sorry. Oh, fuck. I won't do it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we love Kenny. We yeah. love Kenny. Yeah. Uh, it's about, yeah, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. But I want, let's hear the Charlie story. Okay. So, in, it's about 1965, 66, 67, I don't know, one of those years. And I'm not playing the drums, but I'm with my mother. And, and I'm going shopping with her. And WHOT is on. And there, there was channel, the AM radio, there's no FM. So it's the AM radio that would sometimes play a good song every now and then. You know, you get a Beatles song or something. And all of a sudden, I hear this weird sound coming on. And I, I recognize it because at one point in time, my mother sold Indian products. So I actually was familiar with the sound of a sitar in Youngstown, Ohio. So there's a sitar, and I hear this line. Then it was like it was like an electrifying moment, you know. And then Jagger comes in with that, and I knew that in that one second, I knew I was never going to finish high school. I wow. said, this is it. I'm doing that. And so that was, you know, that kind of pushed me over the edge. But Painted Black wow. totally was where I was at mentally. In fact, in a lot of ways, I was more of an Animals fan than a Beatles fan. Because we got to get out of this place. All these songs, that's yeah, kind of yeah. how I felt, you know? Yeah. Yep. That's yeah. great, man. Okay. Uh, Charlie, we Charlie. played that song last night. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. so great. I mean, everything he did was the right thing to do you know what i mean like yeah. in hindsight you listen to it you go and the wobbly bits that were on there oh pure, i know pure danger you know what i mean it's like if it was getting too safe all of a sudden he would make it dangerous again and that would pull yeah. you in as a listener all of a sudden he would just you know and then <laughs> bam you go oh yeah. my god you forgot how good you know, it could be <laughs> I know, you know, when I started playing again with this band I'm in now, I I, uh, I was on the phone with them one time. We were doing that song, and I said, Charlie, I gotta, can I just ask you a question about Painted Black? <clears throat> and I said, I'm just having a hard time, you know, like getting the right feel. Are you playing quarter notes or eighth notes on the tom-tom or something? I, and he said, he said, oh, God, it's, it's, it's a simple song to play. It's not hard. He said just don't play it too fast. And I just thought, you know, like that was, it was classic Charlie. He's like, exactly. Yeah. Right. He, was, he was exasperated with the idea. I'm like, you know, but was it, cause it, he's like switches from sort of quarter notes to eighth notes, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, well, some of it I think is the brief rebound. Uh, you know I mean? It's, it's that technique where you hit and pull, but it's not, it's like a push pull, but it's not really, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Push -pull thing. And it gets yeah. that boomba 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 thing. Right, you right. Go, uh, yeah, and he, yeah. as you can imagine, Myron, he loved questions like that. He he yeah. <laughs> he li he lived for questions like Absolutely. that. Yeah. Like, yeah. He, he, like he couldn't remember what he played. It's just yeah. yeah I just play it. You yeah. know. Yeah. Don't play it. Just don't play it too fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't play it too fast. I'm with your right hand and hit you there. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh man, miss that guy. All right, I'm gonna. This is the last question I'm gonna ask you, and it's a, it's a really good one from um, Heidi Vertaler. Um, when I do you know? I don't know if you know. She said when I first met Neil on the producers panel at the New Music Seminar in New York in 1986, he said, "Go for the Fourth of July finale sound. Exaggerate everything." It's pretty cool. It's kind of. It's, reminiscent of what you're talking about and then uh he said rehearsing and working everything out in the studio tends to make the sound less fresh and crisp so her question to you is what were your experiences of of this approach and what would your advice be for a producer or anyone getting their start in the music community okay well that's that's kind of a a multifaceted question because it's it's predicated on what level the band is on that you're working with. Sure, you know, to, yeah. In other words, if you're working with a young band, you're better off doing more pre-production than you... So when you hit the studio, you have a clear vision of, of what the songs are going to be, how they... Pardon me, the parts and how they're going to sound. <coughs> relative. You know, and then you're honing the sound and finalizing the arrangement and looking for the definitive performance. With a band that's been around a while, um, it's different. What you want to do is get them into a creative situation where spontaneity and truth comes through. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? They've already established who they are. So maybe they want a different version of what they are. And you can influence that subtly in terms of sound and things like that. You know, it, usually it's the things you take away, you know, and then reintroduce a different element later on. So it really depends on, on what you're trying to get, you know, and the type of record that you're trying to make. You know, Mike Chapman, who I worked with a bunch, was great because he would make super exciting sounding records. And what we did, Invincible. Um, great. I, I, I was just screwing around with it. You know, we had never played the song. So I heard it and I was just, trying things. We did two run-throughs to actually learn the song. And at the end of the second run-through, I said, okay, I, I'm ready to go. He goes, I got it. I go, what? I, I said, I, no, I, I know what I want to play. He goes, I got it. You're done. And it, and he did. I mean, it was the first take and the bridge he cut from the second take. You know, because I think I stopped playing and was thinking of, you know, fixing my head or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, but he... You know, and they were, and he was right. Like when I hear that track, I go, well, for what we were trying to do, which was like an exciting, energetic, hard sounding track, that snare drum, you know. Oh, my God. Just, you know, that's invincible, my, my main drum. You know, yeah. I've used on everything, but that, he took that sound to another level, you know, yeah. and that was Tucko with him, you know, George Tucko. Yeah, so that was my. Yeah, that was my lead-in question when I first met you at Simmons in 1985. That song was on the radio, and I said, can I ask you a question? He went, yeah, sure, yeah, what? I said, what was the snare drum you used on Invincible? And you said, "Uh, the Invincible snare. (laughs) And it was great. I'll never forget it 40 years later. That was my Billy Cobble moment with you. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, sure. uh, uh, no, but and I wanted to, I, I had made a note about John Aldridge and you had, we talked about this once before. In Great the Drum. Yeah. 
And that was one of the prototypes you mentioned, right? One of the Ludwig, like a Black Beauty sort of prototype? Well, no, that was my, it, it was a prototype for what became their brass snare. Oh, right. Yeah. Brass snare, yeah. right. Sorry, yeah. always the, the, two, the Black Beauties were brass too, but they were black. This one is, you know, natural finish. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and John, John engraved it for you. Six and a half. <clears throat> John, uh, amazing job engraving it. You know, yeah. he's, the, he's, he's the, the, the guy's, a, you know, a true artist. He's an amazing drum guy. I mean, yeah, he knows he sure a is. lot about drums, you know. He's, he's an asset to us. He's, he's a great, great guy and a, and a, and a funny man, too. He's funny, yeah. He's, he's yeah. a very, yeah, great, sarcastic sense of humor. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love him. He's good. Um, when we were on tour with Ario, he was, you know, I would see him every day. And he's, he's just a funny guy. You know, yeah. You look forward to seeing him. Well, that in that drum, I want to say recently, I, I don't know who I was talking to. Gosh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. But someone told me that they based a sound on a record that they have off that. Like they told the engineer, I want the sound that Myron had on Invincible for my, maybe it was Greg. Maybe it was Greg talking about wanting that sound for the David Lee Roth record. I think that might've been it. I, I, yeah. I, mean, I love Greg. My Greg, you know, Greg and I are like, he's like a little brother, to me, you know? So yeah. at, at different times, I would just, you know, you want to use that. Yeah. You know, I and I've done that with my other friends too, but you know, but, but Chapman, yeah. you know, sampled that stare, and then he would use it on everything. And I, oh. in, and he was so <laughs> deaf, you know, that he would have a speaker so loud. So I come into Oceanway and I'm doing a session, and I, I stop and I listen, and I was my Chapman working here. because <laughs> he I could hear it. It was that loud, and I open it. It's deafening. You know, and and, and the both of them are looking over at me, and their faces are red because they, you know, that's my snare drum. I go, is that my snare drum? <laughs> and Chapman goes, it's our snare drum. <laughs> it's pretty funny, yeah. And he was oh my so God. I got a funny story about Chapman. We're oh doing a Lita Ford record, the first one, Lita, and well, we're in um, uh, the Two Brothers Studio. The Raw Brothers. What's the name of her? Oh, man. Slips in my mind for a second. But we're in the studio that we used a lot. And it'll come to me as I'm talking. And Chapman's complaining. He's, speakers are not loud enough. They're not loud enough. There's something wrong with them. I need other speakers. So they bring in bigger speakers. <laughs> so he goes, still not enough. Me and Tucker are looking at each other. Now, Tucker's wearing those things that people land planes with. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and he's about ready to get the second one and put it over there, too. So they bring them more amplifiers. So we're listening to a playback, and I think it was You Can't Catch Me, which is an insane drum track, okay? And, it was, and he's got it cranked beyond belief. All of a sudden, Taco taps me on his shoulder, <laughs> and he goes like this, and I look over, and the speaker's on fire. So he grabs a thing, <laughs> and he's filming the speaker that's on fire, okay? So I run again. A fire extinguisher. <laughs> you know, he caught the speakers on fire, and he was still wasn't loud enough. And I said, "God, I love this guy." You know, <laughs> I mean, there's no more, and he wants more. <laughs> yeah, and he's capable. Oh my of God, oh, he was fantastic. Yeah. Oh great. man. Yeah. And his record's night. Yeah, man. I'm I'm so glad we. I'm, I wanted to touch on Invincible. I feel like I always bring that up, but. There's so many, so many great songs. Um, thank you for doing this today. This is hey, Johnny. Thanks for having me. Man. 
You know. Oh, awesome. You're the best, Tyrone. All the love to you, my friend. All the love to you too, brother. Hang with me if you would for one second and we'll, we'll end the live stream. Yeah, thanks for watching, everybody. Big hand for Myron Gronbacher. Man, the great, the legendary, mighty Tyrone. And uh, I, I'm sorry if I didn't get to your questions. I know tons of people were posting stuff, but um, yeah, I, I could, we could keep Myron here all day. So thank you, Myron, for doing this. My pleasure.